Episode 164, everybody, with Andy Cagnetta, the CEO of Transworld Business Advisors. Had a fantastic conversation. If you are into business uh, mergers and acquisition activity specifically, you will undoubtedly take away a lot from this episode. I know I sure did. And uh, Andy's been doing it for many, many years and offers a ton of knowledge and insight into the industry, uh, the effects of 2020, the 2021 outlook, uh, you know, the, the ultimate buyer's playbook for 21, um, what it takes to sell a business, how you should prepare the sale, etc. So fantastic conversation with Andy Cagnetta. Check him out. We've linked him up in the show notes. And as a reminder, everybody, please subscribe rate, review, like, comment, and share. Thank you, as always. The continued support on the podcast is not going unnoticed. With that said, please sit back, relax, and welcome the one and only Andy Cagnetta. The Optimal Life. So, uh, how is life in uh, in Florida these days? I was just there. I was just there several weeks ago, and I always wonder why I'm stuck in Cleveland, Ohio, every time I go down south. Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey, so uh, I understand that sentiment. And things in Florida are great. I mean, it's it's been a great place to live. I've lived here for about you know 25 years now, and uh, over 25 years, and it's it's been a great place to raise our family and. Obviously, the weather is great six months out of the year. The other six months, it's just plain hot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to get used to it. Well, that's when you get the vacation homes in North Carolina, like I heard on one of your recent podcasts for the summertime. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, that is. Yeah. So you've been doing a podcast for how long now? We've been doing it, I think, over two years. I mean, we have 100 episodes, so that would, you know... One a week uh, would put it over two years. Yeah, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Have you seen direct results from the podcast? I think what we've seen is uh, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, the long answer is anything you do in marketing and the work in the world, it, it's a question of how effective is something, and to try to put dollars exactly to the bottom line about something like a podcast is tough. Right, but I think it. You know, giving out that content to the world has been helpful to us, uh, and obviously, people seeking more information about us. So, I, I think it's good. So, 2020, the year that never was. What a scary time to be in business, right? Talk to us a little bit about what 2020, what you saw in 2020 regarding how the pandemic affected M&A activity. So, it's been interesting, right? So, I've been through a few crises in the world uh certainly the dot-com blow up and 9-11 around the 2000s uh we had 2009-2010 the banking meltdown and now we've had the COVID crisis you know it seems to happen every 10 years and each one of them is different what's different about this one is as far as the M&A activity of course you know the end of March April May we saw very few transactions, people hesitating, people wondering what's going to happen in the world. But after that, things picked up. Now, interestingly enough, there's less inventory in the world uh, for two reasons. Businesses might have closed, like, and a 
a lot of what we sell out there in the world is hospitality, especially here in Florida, is hospitality and travel related. So those businesses are on the sidelines. And so there was less transactions, but the activity for buyers is incredible. And that's, I think, because of uh, people losing their jobs and looking to replace incomes and uh, that uh, businesses are being acquisitive right now because of cheap money and things like that. So it's been, you know, I, I don't want to say it's been good for us. We've done less transactions, but the transactions have been getting bigger. And as compared to the last downturn, the banks still have money. People still have money. The stock market is still up. So there's a lot of dry powder out there. So were you seeing a lot of businesses that were financially health? I mean, it's a good time in 2020. Unfortunately, uh, some people's struggles are other people's gains. But you know, the, the businesses that are healthy, that are sustainable, um, those are the guys that are really taking advantage, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, through 2020 and saying, we're going to scoop up all these little other competitors potentially or other businesses. They cannot sustain like we can. This is a great opportunity to go in and, and take market share while we can. Yeah, sure. Anybody that had a strong balance sheet. But, you know, listen, there's so much money out there. The PPP money was going to businesses. And, you know, not everybody needed it as much as others. And they have this excess cash. I mean, what we're looking at right now for 2020, you, you mentioned the year that never was. We're looking at what's, what are people going to value 2020 at? And, and we've already seen banks and valuation experts ignore 2020, even if it was good for the business. Mm. So they're ignoring it. And I've seen some businesses that, yes, they profited because they sold PPP or hand sanitizer or whatever it was, cleaning supplies. And that business is not going to be here in 2021 or 2022. Yeah, interesting. So the 2020, it's an asterisk all around. You're not going to get necessarily hammered for the 2020 because every most businesses were just cut in half uh so in, in a valuation it sounds like you're saying you know you got to kind of take the year 2020 out of it for future valuations and maybe at least in the next year or two uh but on the flip side of it interestingly enough you're saying that the businesses that might have doubled in size you got to take that out of it as well because it was a abnormal year all around yeah, I, I, that is correct. But, you know, what we're, people buy businesses based on what they're going to make in the future. And the only way to predict the future sometimes is to look at past financials. So if 2020 was incredibly good, like I'll take a, a small little business like a pizza parlor uh, that we had for sale, a friend of mine, it's a long story, but he his business doubled during the economic downturn because he was a pizza parlor that did mostly delivery. And so now he's seeing his sales wane. And what's going to happen is if the businesses that doubled in 2020 can sustain that, like like you said, maybe they went out and they were acquisitive and they bought up market share and they're going to be able to sustain that, they will get that valuation. But businesses like I was at a printing company uh, a couple of days ago uh, and they had a great 2020 because they sold masks and they sold printed uh, you know, little bottles of hand sanitizer, and they had a great 2020. However, 2021, their business in 2019 was mostly driven by real estate, people going to look at houses, and events 
live events. Those aren't happening yet. So their sales for 2021 are down because the PPP and the hand sanitizer and all that is widely available now. So their valuation, you know, will be, uh, 2020 will be ignored. Taking 2020 out of the equation for a moment, I mean, uh, for a pizza parlor, for example, I mean, how how do you, what type of multiples do you guys see in in some of these industries that you're dealing in? So I always say that multiples are are direct uh, correlation to the quality and quantity of earnings. So if a pizza parlor, say, makes a hundred thousand dollars, then Anything less than a million, we're not talking EBITDA, we're talking seller's earnings, which includes their salaries and their and their things they may write off against the business, like a car, personal car. But So let's take a pizza parlor that makes $100,000. That's probably worth two times, maybe three times if it's a good business. If a business makes a million dollars and it's a manufacturing company, it, it, it could be worth up to four or five times. Um, and as the quantity and quality of the earnings go up, uh, the, the multiples could go up higher than that. What are some other things that you guys look at when you're value, you know, trying to put a value to a business? Obviously, it's easy to look at financials. It's easy to go back and, and look at the numbers, the, the balance sheet. Are they leveraged, under leveraged debt? All these different things where it's kind of just, it's there in black and white. Um, what are some of the other things that uh, a seller should be concerned with as he or she is trying to plan and prepare for an ultimate exit. So back to quality of earnings. What are quality of earnings? Well, do you have good books and records? So if you have uh, good computer systems for your inventory and you're not doing crazy things to avoid taxes, that's the quality of earnings, which, you know, if we can't find the earnings, uh, that's an issue. And then, of course, do you have one customer, one major customer that's 80% of your sales or 50% of your sales uh, that has a 30-day out on their contract? That's the quality of earnings. And then, as far as owners are concerned, are you the chief cook and bottle washer for the business? You know, is the business going to literally disappear once you disappear? Mm. And that is certainly an issue that will drive uh, value in multiples. And But we, we've sold businesses, for instance, we've sold several uh, uh, psychology practices. Now, there can't be anything more personal than a psychology practice, but they are able to sell, but the multiples may be low. Yeah, and then there's other factors as well, such as you know maybe lack of competition, barrier to entry, those types of things, I would imagine, all play a part to some extent in in potentially pushing the multiple up maybe one or two times. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, if somebody had a patent on a piece of software or SAS, uh, you know, and they, you know, will go to sell it, you see these crazy multiples out there in the world where these uh, tech companies get incredible amounts of money because that's what it, you know, that's what it takes. Uh, I mean, you know, the, they, they, people are investing in those things because they think they're going to get uh, recurring revenues forever. And yes, if you have a company that is highly dependent on the owner and it's not recurring revenues and it's transactional in nature, uh, those multiples can go down. I've got friends in the uh, attorney industry here in Cleveland, 
and I've heard of businesses that they've sold. They work at some of the big law firms that they've sold um, uh, as much as 15 times earnings. What, what's the biggest that you guys have typically seen, if you don't mind me asking? You know, we, we've sold some businesses that didn't make money. You know, we sold a business that was uh, manufacturing cedar products. Uh, and you think of cedar chips and cedar hangers. Uh, they, the cedar gets rid of moths. And the business grossed about $2 million, netted uh, almost nothing. I mean, basically nothing. But what they had was they had SKUs at companies like Bed Bath & Beyond, Kmart, where where a, an acquiring company came in and said, wait a second, you know, we want that shelf space. We want those products in our product line. And they paid over $2 million for that business. Wow. So, wow. you know, so that's the kind of thing um, that we see. It, we saw that in, in some of our medical sales, device sales, where, you know, the business was literally losing money and we sold it for $8 million because they had patents uh, that they had successfully defended against billion dollar companies. And to piggyback off of those businesses, distressed businesses, companies that are either breaking even or, or losing money annually, uh, and then they're looking to sell. I mean, it's typically, unless you get lucky and you have something like, it sounds like you guys were able to secure. I mean, what else, what's the other option? It would just be basically an asset deal, correct? Yeah, I mean, it is an asset deal at, at that level. And you just, so, you know, oftentimes when we go to sell businesses, uh, 90% of the time it is based on their earnings. And we're looking at... Uh, Finding the best buyer and and finding the best buyer is creating competition. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, there's a final meeting going on right now for a very famous uh, tourist attraction here in South Florida, and we've been able to get some good uh, buyers, and we've created competition, and therefore, you know, the the multiple has gone up. Uh, talk to me a little bit about. Well, yeah, talk to me a little bit about this Ultimate Buyer's Playbook for 2021. What is that exactly? Well, it, there is a few times in the world where it's a really good time to buy a business. Now, when we first came up with that, the SBA program. So the SBA program has been really an incredible source of wealth for business owners and the ability to sell their businesses back before 2009, 2010, the cap on SBA loans was $2 million. And SBA program, basically, the SBA guarantees the bank that they'll help them with these loans, 80% guarantee and up to 90% guarantee sometimes. And they will back these loans. Well, it used to be $2 million. It went up to $5 million where it currently is today. That's a pretty you know, nice thing for a business owner to be able to sell their business, have bank financing involved, and the buyer be able to leverage in for 10% down. So, and since the pandemic started uh, up till September last year, the SBA was paying 100% of the principal and interest for six months. At the beginning of the year, they said the same thing. They were going to be willing to do six months. They backed off that now and are doing three months. And there's no SBA guarantee fee. And the guarantee fees on these on these loans could be about $40,000 per million dollars 
of loan. So they could save literally hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, and they could have three months of payments for free. So part of the ultimate tool book is being able to go out there and find a good business to buy, be able to leverage into it for like 10% down, get three months free of payments mm. and working capital to, to, and, and have you know a 10 year amortized loan on basically assets and businesses. So because of that, it's a good time to buy, is what you're saying. It's a great time to buy. At the same time, it's a great time to sell, which is very unique, and uh, it's, it's hard to explain to people. But if you want to sell your business right now, as you, you know, we're talking about some of the multiples being up around 15, you know, we've heard some of the private equity groups uh, paying for regular businesses up to 11 times something that doing a, a few million dollars in EBITDA. Wow. Uh, 15 is certainly high, uh, but you know, and the usual is around five or six per, five or six times. So you're seeing it's a great time to sell your business too. And since the money is so cheap, and since there's an opportunity to leverage into these deals, it's also a good time to pay. Well, and let me just ask you this, uh, and I know this is nothing's guaranteed, and this is not, you don't usually let government regulations dictate when you should sell your business, but with the Biden administration talking about a capital gains tax going from, what, 20 to 30 or more percent, um, potentially as soon as next year, does that give sellers incentive to get a deal done this year? The, the short answer will be yes. We've seen this before when capital gains was going to change. Uh, I forget what year it was, but we saw a bunch of deals get done in December. If that is going to be the case and there's going to be a 10-point swing, which I don't think there will be, but if there's going to be something like a 10-point swing and you're selling your business for you know $5 million and let's say that's all gain, uh, you know, that could be a $500,000, $400,000 difference in your capital gains costs. You know that might drive someone to try to sell this year. Sure, if they were going to sell. Well, you you said you don't think it's going to happen. What do you what do you predict's happening for next year? I I, I don't think it'll be ten points. You don't I think do it'll be think ten taxes points. Taxes are going up. I think it's inevitable yeah. uh, that there will be uh, an increase in taxes. Will it be five points? Will it be four points? Uh, you know, I just I'm not sure they'll ever get ten points through. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, what are some of the mistakes, Andy? You've been doing this for a long time. And uh, CEO and manager of Transworld Business Advisors, you're down there in South Florida. Uh, talk to us about some of the mistakes that entrepreneurs or business owners are make um, as they think that they want to sell a business. What are some of the things that they're potentially doing wrong in planning for that sale? So one of the things that they do wrong is they start winding down the business. So again, business business buyers value the business based on future earnings. So if those future, if the past earnings, they base it on the past, if the past earnings are going up and revenues are going up, they're gonna draw that line into the future and value the business much higher. In fact, if the business and revenues and earnings are going down, that's gonna have a huge downward pressure on valuation. So the first thing that business owners don't wanna do is start winding down. The, the, the second thing they don't wanna do is have one buyer. Uh, we always say if you have one buyer, the buyer has you. You want to have options and you want to be able to keep, even if you have one buyer, them 
uh, honest through the process. We've seen a lot, you know, we see a lot of deals retraded at the last minute. And unless you have viable options to go to, you're going to be, you know, if you've already bought your ticket to go around the world on your cruise, you're going to perhaps uh, lose a lot of money right before the closing table. Because, again, once they have a deal in place, they they start winding down the business or they focus too much on the deal and they don't focus on their business. And the bank and the buyers ask for the, you know, profit and loss statements for the last month right before the deal closes. Mm-hmm. And if it goes down, uh, things can, you know, have issues. What are some of the biggest issues and biggest hurdles that you see? Getting, you know, you can get your LOI signed, you know, you can get a letter of intent or a letter of interest, you can get uh, maybe even potentially a purchase agreement kind of note uh, letter in place that's, I believe, maybe somewhat legally binding but with, with maybe an out clause based upon a final due diligence or something like that. Uh, what are some of the what are some of those hurdles at you know when you get to the eleventh hour that a lot of times prevent the deal from getting done? Well, it, it, the surprises hurt, right? So surprises such as uh, hidden litigation that we didn't know about, uh, perhaps you know silly things like uh, gift cards programs and or uh, warranty programs that you know no one knew about that there's this outstanding liability that wasn't on the balance sheet uh, uh, the other thing is you know having the wrong team in place sometimes attorneys and accountants uh, are not versed at doing this business and they ask for bad, you know ridiculous things and especially uh, you know an accountant that's going to lose a client you know, advises their client, oh, you should be getting more money for this. And then there's the third party interference. There's the uh, landlords, if there's a landlord uh, involved, and or if there's a real estate purchase, there could be environmental issues that pop up. And then lastly, the, you know, there could be, there could be tax issues and there could be, uh, you know, code issues on buildings that you know, they didn't upgrade uh, in the Earth Code or OSHA. Uh, they didn't upgrade things, and then all of a sudden, there's a big expense that no one ever knew about mm. that pops up. It's 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 usually things that were not disclosed, and that's why we try when we go in there. You know, we want to know the skeletons before we you know we go through all this. Yes, perfectly said. Those surprises. Gosh, that's got to be such a bad feeling after all that time work, you know, all that work that you put into it. It's like selling a home, too. That happens all the time. Um, yeah, it does. And, of course, this is where you and your team is obviously involved in these deals and transactions, and you're representing your clients in the deal. And I know you're a, a, a skilled negotiator and um, even a trainer of negotiation techniques throughout the country. Um so talk to me a little bit about what, what does it take to be a sound negotiator? You know, I, I think you have to have kind of a calm head. I, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people think this negotiations, uh, you, you need to be this character uh, that's on television, these hard-charging kind of things. And it's, it's much more subtle than that. Uh, one of uh, my favorite books is uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And he was a FBA hostage negotiator. And he has a, much, a different approach about giving the people 
involve uh, control. Now, there are certain things that you can do, uh, body language that you could, you know, indicate to your opponent that they're inflicting pain on you. Like one of my favorites is you could flinch, you know, like if they give you a value proposition and you physically flinch and you, you can even say it out loud, you can even go, ooh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, a lot of times people will want to inherently soothe your pain if they're empathetic and they will do something to change the deal to make it a little better. So you can do subtle things like that. Uh, the other thing is that everybody in the world uh, talks about in negotiations, you want to start high. Uh, you do want to start higher, especially in buying and selling a business. It is a negotiation. So the listing price on a business is not what people usually pay. It's usually less than that. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing in the world is that because of the internet, and I was around before the internet was playing in this space, the the ability to educate yourself on what a business should cost has, has obviously been much more uh, apparent to people. So the, the difference between the listing price and the eventual sale price has been shrinking over the years. So I think, you know, even people on, uh, it online when they're looking to buy businesses, if it's grossly overpriced, it's not going to sell. If it's closer to where it should be, there's going to be some negotiation, say 10 to 20% of what, uh, I think the average is about 12% of what uh, people are asking for business. If the person sitting across the table from you, when you do the flinch and you, you, know, you do some of the theatrics and those kind of things, lacks empathy, how do you handle that? Well, if if they lack empathy, you know, you're trying to get to their to their goals. It's funny because not everybody's goal is money. Uh, in fact, this you know tourist attraction that we're selling here in Florida, uh, it, it's going to be a seven figure deal. Uh, you know, over ten million dollars, and it's it's the the family that owns the business. The easy way for them to do this was for them to sell it to a developer that was going to bulldoze the place and buy the land. And they probably could have netted a lot of money doing that, uh, perhaps even a little bit more money than they're going to get. But what they're, they don't want to see this tourist attraction end. This is an iconic uh, tourist attraction, and they want, so the best buyer to them is someone that's going to help create and continue the legacy. Mm. So sometimes, you know, when you're negotiating, uh, people get in their heads that, you know, what they want is exactly what the other side wants. So that's the kind of key, understanding what each side wants, because sometimes you can give something that's not monetary uh, that will satisfy the other thing. So if they're unempathetic, if they're a sociopath, I mean, I'm not sure you should be doing business with them, uh, but you know, some people are tough to deal with and, and you'll have to find other ways to negotiate with them. Uh, franchising. Franchises is something that's one of your areas of expertise. Uh, is this Are franchises um, good businesses to get into now, especially post-pandemic as we come out of it? I, and maybe that's just such a loaded question because there's so many different franchise types within the franchise industry. Uh, I guess my question would be, uh, you know, which which franchises do you suggest maybe getting into? So I, you know, listen, franchising is a great 
thing for a lot of people. Uh, it, it, you know, franchising, the idea is they have a proven model that they've proved out in the world that is replicatable. And the franchisor is going to provide enough services to cover the, the, the royalties that you would have normally paid. So as a franchisor myself, I kind of wake up every morning and say, you know, did I give my franchisees enough to cover their, you know, their, their royalties? You know, would they have had to go out and hire someone to do social media? Would they have gone out to have to hire someone to have a CRM system? Would they have to go out to all these things and, and pay actually more than they're paying me? So that's, that's the kind of franchise you want to do. Now, it, it, here's the trick, right? So if you wanted a McDonald's or an Orange Theory or, you know, a Dunkin' Donuts, to try to get into those systems is very difficult. They're, they're wonderful franchisees, franchises. I mean, if you want a McDonald's, it is certainly like owning a, a recurring revenue, right. just a machine, a money machine, right? Or like a Chick-fil-A. To try yeah. The, the key is to try to get into a franchise system that hasn't exploded yet, where there's uh, opportunities to either become a multi-unit franchise or a franchisee in a certain area and be able to leverage yourself uh, to be one of the players in that franchise. That is hard to kind of balance uh, to find that right franchise because one of the detriments to franchising is you get into a system that's not ready to expand, that doesn't have uh, good systems, and, and it, it's kind of a balance. But it's a great way for people who are going out for the first time and don't have never owned a business to have a great partner. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a level of security there and a, a sh much quicker and shorter learning curve because it's already been proven out and you've got people to lean on. Um, is there a specific you know, market or industry that you like right now? Is it like fitness or food or something else potentially? Well, I, in, in the franchising world, uh, you know, I always like B2B businesses. I think, you know, those are going to be, continue to be great. Uh, you know, like my partners uh, own uh, uh, Signorama and Fully Promoted, uh, which they, you know, they deal both with digital advertising and and uh, you know, physical advertising. I think those will continue to be great. The food business, yeah. I mean, I, you know, as much as you you think the food business is a very tough business to be in, but some of these franchises do very well. I mean, they also own uh, the Great Greek. Uh, it's a wonderful new you know franchise uh, that is growing very quickly. And so I I do like some of the food franchises. I think you have to be. Uh, careful with fads, uh, you know, whether, you know, donuts are, are you know, like uh, some of the specialty donut things, maybe not Dunkin' Donuts, of course, but, you know, some of these specialty sandwiches, is it too niche, right? Is it yeah. is it too niche to have a grilled cheese, uh, you know, franchise? But maybe it's not. Uh, so I like, I like franchises that have good support, uh, you know, I, people always ask me, what's a good business to buy? And I, I, I don't think it's really, I'm not worried about industry. I'm more worried about, and on an existing business, 
do, people hate change. So if they've been around for 10 or more years and they have good revenues and they have good earnings and the people who are running that business no longer are really paying attention. They're not marketing, they don't have a social media campaign, they don't do anything like that. That's a good business. That's a great business to buy that you can jump in there and expand. Yeah, so, beautiful, beautiful, that, sir. That could be anything. Yes, it can. Um, speaking of food, Andy, I am a, a big fan of pasta. So um, maybe I can get a seat at your uh, annual uh, pasta dinner one of these days. So the, the pasta dinner, yeah, so it'll be our 20th year next year. Uh, and and if, so if I was going to give anybody advice today on how to grow their business or presence in a community uh, is to get involved in uh, nonprofit efforts and helping your community. Uh, I have gotten so much from being involved in charities. And so the first charity I was involved with is called LifeNet for Families. They're uh, emergency food pantry, pantry slash uh, soup kitchen. Uh, I, I, the, the executive director hates that term, but it's the best way to describe it. And we built a building 20 years ago, and I was chairman, and I said, everybody's got to do something to raise money. So I said, I'm going to cook dinner for my family. Again, I had owned a small business, a pasta shop, another long story, in Hartford, Connecticut. And so I said, I'm going to cook dinner for my friends and family and raise money. We raised about $500 that year, our first pasta dinner 20 years ago. We had about 20 or 30 people there. Last year, uh, in 2019, our last in-person one, we raised $268,000. We had 1,000 people there. And so uh, next year will be our 20th anniversary. We have booked it already for February uh, 20th, uh, 2022. And we will probably at least have a thousand people there and hopefully raise another quarter of a million dollars will which will bring us over to two million dollar mark uh for our history of the boston center that is absolutely incredible that's got to probably be of all the things that you've accomplished in your career i would imagine that that there is right at the top of the list yeah i always kid that it's going to be on my gravestone right it's going to be here lies chef andy (laughs) and i'm not really a chef but uh that's you know, what we call people who give $5,000 or more, and I am the head chef, Chef Andy. I actually did cook uh, the meal right up to about five years ago when, you know, when a thousand people show up, I need a little more help than <laughs> cooking dinner that's, in the kitchen. That's incredible. So, and, and is the money, where's the money being used? It's going, it goes to who? It goes to LifeNet for families uh, that serve, you know, thousands of people here in, in Broward County. Uh, both uh, people who are homeless and of course working families and seniors who just can't make it on whatever you know assistance check or even working the working poor uh, you know we give we've been uh, serving uh, dinners to first responders who are working we've been serving dinners to kids who would normally go to school who who you know rely on free breakfasts and lunches uh, so, you know, there's a lot of people uh, that we serve like that. Oh, that's beautiful. Hey, last question for you. This is a fascinating conversation, and I, I love talking business. Uh, my last question for you before we go. You're in business sales, franchising, M&A, negotiating. You're, you're doing all these different things. You've been doing this for decades. Of everything that the job requirements, everything that comes with the, the requirements of doing your job, what is the number one favorite thing? that you get most satisfaction from? 
I think helping people be successful. I, you know, it, it, I think that's my job, right? As as a leader at Transworld, not only in my Florida offices, which I still own and maintain, uh, but in my franchise offices, my job is to give people the tools to succeed. So I feel very good when somebody closes a very nice deal and they call me and it changes their their lives and uh, they made enough money to you know uh, go on vacation, send kids to college. You know, have a have a christening or bar mitzvah party. I mean, you know, uh, those those are the things that I, I I love doing. Guys, check him out, Andy Cagnetta. Did I say your last name properly? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Andy Cagnetta, CEO of Transworld Business Advisors, co-host of the Deal Board Podcast, business exit expert, and uh, the uh, prime chef, as you heard, of Andy's family pasta dinner. <laughs> going into its 20th year next year. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Nate, great speaking to you. Thank you so much.